Awesome. We are recording now. Um, all right. So the first question I wanted to ask from you was over these years or even prior to starting this career, was there ever a moment where environmental science or working on climate change or any or ecology, any of those fields that you're so actively involved in, um, was there ever a time where it just clicked or m- multiple times where it just clicked for you, like an aha moment type thing? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I remember it like it was yesterday. Um, when I was about 17, uh, I took a, a trip out west by myself. And so I, I jumped in my old beat-up car, and uh, I was raised in a little town in Missouri. And I drove out west, and I read Edward Abbey's Desert Solitaire sitting on the hood of my car in Arches National Monument. And <laughs> that was a, a seminal moment for me. <laughs> it, it had a huge impact on uh, my career direction. Uh, I went back to the University of Missouri and initially enrolled as uh, pre-med. That lasted uh, less than a semester. Wow. <laughs> then I uh, immediately ended up in uh, wildlife fisheries and forestry. Okay. And that's what I got my degree in. Yes, I am. Um... My myself and and some of my friends are are, are big into Abby's work, so that's that's, no, that's it, awesome it, to hear. It was a huge impact on me, and um, I'll never forget it. And uh, his his journal journalism, I think, is the best part of his career. Uh, his fiction is fun, but his journalism and essays are actually, I think, uh, more germane to the struggles we're having. So, absolutely, yeah. And then um, to, to build off of that, um, just looking down at some of these main achievements in your career from Unity College and the divestment program, um, the Center for Tropical Ecology, um, being the director for environmental science at Idaho, and all the initiatives you had there, and then your work in, in Florida, with Sustainable Florida, the, there's obviously a clear message that's being sent from this career, but are, are others missing? What's what's something that others are missing when they look at your career or the messaging that you're trying to portray? What's they don't hear that, it. Pardon? They don't hear it. They don't hear it? Uh, yeah. No, I'll, I'll never forget there was a, uh, before the pandemic uh, in late 2019, I believe it was, this climate, climate change student group was uh, having a march down to City Hall. And I walked down the hall and spoke to uh, three different faculty. And I said, you go into the march? None of them knew what I was talking about. So they're completely out of touch. Their, their nose is to the, to the grindstone. They're either getting tenure or they're ha- they have tenure. And they're bringing in the next grant with indirect costs to service uh, the university's mandate for more resources or they're bringing in their next crop of graduate students and they're servicing their very narrow area of research. Uh, There are many areas of research, uh, narrow or not, that I desperately want to see continue. For example, whole ecosystem gas exchange. We really need the people that know how to do that to uh, continue that mission critical work. It will help us a lot in understanding, for example, what evaporative uh, demand in the Amazon is doing to stomatal function of the the big trees. Are they closing down more frequently and losing less water because it's it's, uh, 
it's drier and therefore they're gaining less carbon. Uh, any number of, of physiological responses could be underway right now, most of which, well, all of which are not good. Uh, you know, we will lose uh, a big chunk of the southern half of the Amazon. It will be become savanna within the next several decades. And that's bad news for the carbon balance of the planet because the bigger the Amazon is, the better things are. But, you know, in general, the field of ecology is is focused on questions that were developed mainly in the 70s, 60s, and 70s by academics that can trace a lot of their origin to Oxford and Cambridge. And uh, they were men for the most part. Recently, the field has begun to diversify very, very rapidly. But the point here is that is that the academy itself has not been responsive to the crises that we are in. It got its act together with COVID-19 because there was an imperative. But uh, climate change has been every bit as much of a crisis that's been ongoing. And the academy has really not responded. Many academics here, they, people that knew me back in my research career when I was doing carbon balance of plants in tropical forests in Central and South America, when they hear what I'm doing now, they say something like, um, oh, well, that must be fun, <laughs> you know, as if, as if it's less important somehow. They really don't get it, you know, and they're, they're not publishing in a field that anybody uh, who's interested in global change is actually going to see. That said, there are thousands of ecologists, ecologists that have gravitated to global change ecology, global change biology, and they're publishing in journals by that name. And I read those journals literally daily, and they're doing Thanks. great work. And we really need to uh, stand behind them, and we need to give them their support that they desperately need. The University of Florida, where I work, uh, has not been known for that work, frankly. Mm. As you were saying, that there is, you seem to have a, a more active community on, on global ecology or just ecology, uh, global change. When you say that, it seems like that those messages, messages could be kind of in a vacuum and, and not really communicated to the nation as a whole, especially in the U.S. Well, that's absolutely true. In March of 2007, I was science advisor to Governor Christ and the legislature, at least on paper. Uh, um, I, my uh, portfolio was climate change and energy alternatives. And in March, I was asked to give an invited talk to a joint session of a uh, special committee of the legislature. And uh, uh, about four minutes into my talk, a uh, conservative legislator rolls from his seat, a senator, called me a liar and a charlatan and demanded that I be dismissed. Mm. And I was, you know, so uh, the good news is I finished my talk on time. <laughs> the bad news, only one newspaper in the entire state carried the story. Wow. Although the, although the press was there. Wow. And so it was just not something that people were interested in for so many years. And uh, eventually I left that position I went back to the University of Florida where I was co-directing the School of Natural Resources and Environment. 
in a part of the university that's governed independently. It's uh, the Institute of Food and Agricultural Science, IFAS. And the vice president for that group defunded my, my position because I had embarrassed the, the ag people wow. uh, by, by communicating to the general public on climate change. And this is in 2007. So I went back to my tenure home and my chair came to me and he said, well, you got to stop doing this climate change stuff because uh, we need you to get grants with indirect costs. We need you to go back to the tropics to do what you were doing before, train graduate students, publish papers. I said, thank you for sharing. <laughs> and, uh, about that time, I was recruited by an amazing person at the University of Idaho. Turned out to be the best mentor I've ever had. And so, although Idaho would not have been a destination normally for me, yeah. uh, I was delighted to move there. And I had three of the best years of my career. Uh, wow. You know, the ind- in terms of grants with federal grants with indirect costs, I knocked down $1.6 million in the first year wow. after I got there. But, you know, my chair would not allow me to work on programmatic grants, which is what I got that money for. Mm. And so... Um, you know, it's, and then I was recruited to be president of this small environmental college in Maine, and <laughs> uh, that was an interesting odyssey as well. But, you know, the point is, is that I, uh, it, although on paper it may look like I've had a direction and a plan, it is anything but. Uh, I've, I've uh, gone from one position to the next, partly as a consequence of having boundaries of what I would do and what, what I wouldn't do. For example, I would not work for Mallinckrodt or Monsanto, yeah. which I'm perfectly qualified to do, but <laughs> I had absolutely not. That's, that's not in my portfolio. Yeah. Uh, I also wouldn't work, wouldn't work for an environmental assessment firm because uh, what they do is rote. It is there to satisfy a legal requirement and not to truly make the kind of difference that we need to be making. Hmm. So with those boundaries in mind, um, I took, I walked through the open doors that were available to me. And that's exactly what I advise my students to do. I say, uh, you can, you can bang on the closed doors and see if one opens for you. But if that doesn't happen, look around you and walk through the open doors and be of maximum service. Yeah. And that's what I've been doing essentially for the last 20 years. And I have to say extraordinary things have found me rather than me seeking out extraordinary things. And, and you've done amazing things along the way. Um, be- before we jump into um, ecological and sustainable literacy among undergrads, I wanted to ask you who, who the mentor was at Idaho. Her name was Margaret Von Braun. Uh, she was the dean of the College of Graduate Studies. She's retired now, uh, but she was absolutely one of the most brilliant people I've ever spent any time with. Oh, uh, truly amazing. remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. And and she uh, made your your time easy there. She wasn't uh, stifling your speeches or. No, no, she was totally on behind me. She she knew who I was right out of the gate, and she gave me the latitude to go after the money for the programs. Uh, She gave me the latitude to develop my own teaching portfolio. So I taught graduate courses in climate change and the the graduate students in in biology at Idaho were (laughs) 
stunned. Yeah. <laughs> they had they really had no idea what was going on in climate change. Yeah. But but that was a real pleasure. And I also taught uh, uh, an upper division undergraduate course, which was also a, a deep pleasure. Yeah. And now to kind of connect one of your initiatives there, because that's where you had the NASA funded climate change education program, correct? Second, secondary school education. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the goal was with that grant was to uh, make experts available via remote teleconnection, either video with audio or just audio, to secondary classrooms on climate change issues where secondary school teachers could uh, simply dial these guys up in between uh, Monday and Tuesday, for example, and come back to the class with a concrete ask answer from an expert. Wow. And um, the, uh, what we found was NASA was very enthusiastic about it. And uh, the Intermountain West is a big place. Uh, I had one school that was 800 miles away. Wow. <laughs> so, but, but what I found was that the, the teachers themselves, the, the professors in these secondary school classrooms, were working under uh, very difficult political circumstances often, especially in eastern Washington, eastern Oregon, uh, Idaho. Um, and they, they were very enthusiastic about it, but the school administrators uh, very, very cautious. They, didn't, they did not want this to go forward uh, very far. Um, unfortunately, I left before the grant was completed, and it was taken over by my colleague, who was also on the grant. Okay, wow. And that kind of ties into the ecological and sustainability literacy. Um, I know this was a um, kind of a, one of the foundational initiatives that you've pursued throughout your career and, and just pushed through it with all your students, and also like beyond your students, beyond who you teach, something that you've always advocated for. Um, can you explain that, but also go into how maybe this can expand to a maybe statewide or national level because we, again, it's just not there in the United States. No, it's not there at all. Um, uh, average person on the street, the average lay person has not a clue uh, what ecosystems are and their function in the climate system. They, they really uh, very much need uh, that information. One of the difficulties with, with, uh, giving that kind of information to a lay audience is um, the messenger has to have credibility. Now, I'm an academic with letters behind my name and usually affiliated with an academic institution, and uh, I'm not going to side up to the bar with Joe Sixpack and have credibility. Yeah. So we need to recruit people who do, and there are groups that are starting to get better and better at that. Um, the Sierra Club recognizes the problem, and they're starting to engage uh, individuals who can learn the material and then carry the message, if you will, into the community at large. The community at large also has to be willing to uh, ask the questions and want to know about it. Uh, the most important place for ecological literacy to, to happen is in the secondary school education. And it has, absolutely has to happen from grade six on, um, if, and earlier if possible, but certainly grade six on. It should be a requirement. It should be mandatory. 
presently in the university level and college level, there are no standards of education for ecological literacy. None. Any place in, in the United States. Wow. There are some places in Europe that have developed their own standards. Uh, but not in the United States that I'm aware of. There may be some outliers that that I I haven't learned about since the last time I looked for this. But uh, by and large, coming up with standards for ecological literacy would be the task of the Ecological Society of America. Um, My most recent talk at their national convention was to promote that very idea. And it was clear that the logistical stumbling blocks between coming up with an agreement among the ecologists as to what those standards should be and then rolling them out to the universities that subscribe to the ESA would be very difficult. The other place where this, uh, in theory, could happen would be with the National Council for Science and the Environment. Now, the National Council for Science and the Environment was originally envisioned by uh, a couple of ecologists, uh, one of which is uh, very famous now, a guy named Stephen P. Hubble. And he, uh, he and his colleague, Henry F. Howe, envisioned a national institutes of the environment, kind of like the NIH. And Congress, in its wisdom, said, no, <laughs> we'll give you some money for that, but it's going to have to be membership driven by the institutions that it serves. And so that's what it turned out to be. And uh, they had many national conventions where the, the topic of discussion in one form or another was what are the standards for environmental education, both at the secondary school level and at the university level. And as long as I was a member of that group, and it's been fairly recently that I no longer followed what was happening there, uh, just a couple of years, there was no success. More recently, what's happened is uh, the National Council for Science and the Environment has become, um, it has essentially abandoned its roots as servicing the academic community per se, and it's now branched out and is now servicing uh, private industry, business, that sort of thing. Um, I have mixed opinions, mixed feelings about how successful that's been or whether or not that's valuable, but it's a hard group to penetrate right now. Yeah. Unless you've you've got some money. So at least that's my impression. I could be wrong, but... Um, and before we move on to the the future of environmental education in the U.S., I wanted to first uh, dive into your time at Unity College and the uh, trailblazing efforts you had there with divesting from fossil fuels. Oh, sure. And and how that went. Well, McKibben uh, came through on one of his visits. I I can't recall the exact context. I was a brand new president and terrified <laughs> of my job. It was it was really a Uh, Those four and a half years were the hardest years of my professional life. They were very, very hard. Um, And rightfully so. uh, I knew when I went there that the campus was squalid. Uh, It had no uh, significant uh, revenue stream that was going to make a difference. And um, so something had to change, and I had to change a lot of things in order to save the college. 
it was very parochial. The faculty at the time believed that their job as a private college was to serve underprivileged Maine students. But in point of fact, uh, their best value for their money would be in the state system, not in a private college That's, that had to charge more tuition than the state system. Yeah. So um, a lot of the changes that I implemented, that I began to implement, were uh, not to the liking of the old guard. And so that made for a, a bumpy ride for me. But I implemented those changes. I uh, took possession right out of the gate of a $10 million award for the endowment. Uh, we uh, brought in... I brought in a marketing firm from Gainesville, Florida, from a guy that I knew. It was a very young firm that had um, had uh, everybody in the firm was under 25. Uh, they couldn't write an invoice, but they were yeah. absolutely drop-dead brilliant when it came to marketing online. They yeah. understood uh, search engine optimization. Uh, they understood uh, ad placement. And so I gave them... Um, $125,000 and I said, have at it. And they completely transformed our image, projecting us west of the Mississippi into suburbs that had demographies that were likely to produce students that would care about the environment. And frankly, Maine is an easy sell. Yeah. And so uh, we re rebuilt our enrollment in 18 months, whereas I thought it would take three years. Uh, we had a revenue stream that allowed me to bond uh, $18 million, and we had full enrollment, even the beginnings of a waiting list. We were told we had uh, more students than we could enroll. But that's a long way around to answer your question. Part of what made that possible was the publicity that we got for being the first college or university in the nation to divest its endowment from the top 200 fossil fuel companies. That was uh, the Do the Math Tour from Bill McKibben. And I know Bill McKibben. We've, we've communicated uh, online variously and have immense respect for him. And so he, he suggested that we divest. And I thought about it for a minute and I thought, well, the chair of my board is vice president of the third largest financial institution in the state. I don't think that's going to happen. So, uh, but there was... A woman in the community that I'd like to refer to as uh, an officious intermeddler. <laughs> she, she kept calling me up like every other day and she'd say, Mulkey, have you divested yet? Yeah. <laughs> and literally, her questions were so, so pointed and so right on that it kept me awake at night. Wow. So I called up a financial firm in Portland, Portland, Maine, and I said, can you do this? And they were quiet at the other end of the line for a long time. And they said, we'll get back to you. A uh, few days later, they got back and they said, we've got a plan. And they drove up to Unity and they presented their plan to me. We made some tweaks. We rehearsed it. We took it to the board of trustees. They voted unanimously to do it. Wow. It was stunning. I never, I didn't see that coming at all. But they, they completely bought in. And their main questions had to do with, will we lose money? And the answer unequivocally is absolutely not. And in point of fact, in the first three years, after we divested, we beat the market, market average by a minimum of 3%. We beat the standard in poor's by a minimum of 3%. 
And that's because uh, we were investing instead in things that were not toxic to the environment, but were uh, earning, had good earning potential. Now, at that time, it didn't pay to invest in sustainable uh, products on the stock market. They were dead last. They were in the bottom. So that wasn't an option for us if we wanted to keep the endowment solid. So now it is an option. And fossil fuels are dead last in the uh, Standard & Poor's 500. In fact, Exxon just got kicked out. Mm -hmm. So, but when we did it, uh, the fossil fuel uh, companies were 18% of the market capitalization, which uh, was huge. And so the board of trustees was really daunted by that. They said, well, if it's 18% of the market capitalization, uh, don't you think you should be on that train? And the answer is that means that there's um, 82% of the market to work with. And there's a lot of room there to run. And uh, the, mark, the firm that we had doing this with us did a superlative job. And in fact, they uh, made that a niche industry for themselves, divesting both wealthy individuals and institutions. And so we had our moment in the sun, uh, a mention in the New York Times, <laughs> that was it. <laughs> uh, since then, uh, the divestment movement has accelerated tremendously. It's done really, really well. But in that brief period, we, re- we got enough publicity that I started opening envelopes that had very fat checks in them yeah. uh, with a note that said, thank you for divesting. And uh, instead of our alumni being angry at us, they were grateful and they expressed their gratitude with money, which we desperately needed at the time. So um, eventually the campus really did completely transform and the student body uh, was uh, very, very different after three years. And so the last year and a half that I was there, it was a a truly uh, different place to be. Uh, unfortunately, the pandemic has closed the face-to-face programming, mm. and I don't know if it's going to reopen. So, but the most important thing an ex-president can do is uh, butt out. <laughs> so, yeah. I stay out, stay out of the the mix. You know, the thing about divestment is that it needs to be taken to the next level. We need to start now giving concrete advice to institutions and wealthy individuals as to what to what other aspects of divestment they should engage. For example, uh, a lot of the commercialization of products uh, represent the biggest uh, body of carbon emissions, and that's not included in divestment. What we're doing is we're hitting the fossil fuel industry hard, uh, and that has, I think, effectively taken away their social license uh, in many cases, although not all. But I I do think that we need to start uh, looking at other areas that we need to leverage divestment through. So I call that divestment 2.0. And then we need to be more explicit about advising institutions and wealthy individuals as to what to invest in. Because now there are very generous returns on sustainability enterprises and renewable energy. Yeah. And, and I, th- I, I just want to build on that to say that I think a lot of times people 
will yell divestment, divestment, but then there's never the, the option or the alternative given to these institutions. They're just told to divest and not, not where to reinvest. Well, the other thing to realize is that public institutions, although the vast majority of them now receive a minority of their funding from the state legislatures, uh, they are still legally beholden to those state legislatures. That makes their fiduciary not the Board of Governors or the Board of Trustees, but the state legislature. That's their fiduciary. And the fiduciary has the responsibility of determining uh, the fiscal soundness of the universities, uh, those public institutions. Accordingly, uh, getting that body to agree to divestment is very, very hard to do. However, the University of California system did it. And so it can be done. Uh, in, in Florida, uh, it, not in my lifetime, certainly probably not in yours or any, any young person's, it's just not going to happen. Um, but that said, um, I think the, what really needs to happen is uh, hardcore regulation of neoliberal economics and neoliberal ca capitalism. And that would include uh, massive regulation of emissions. So and the only place that that can happen is at the federal level and at the international level. And so um, it's important to continue the divestment movement. And uh, one of the high points in my career was to stand on stage with Bill McKibben. I have such immense respect for him. The other thing we did at Unity is uh, I would rent buses uh, and cram them with students and faculty from three different private colleges. And we would drive to D.C. and march around the White House with McKibben. Very cool. Uh, uh, I asked my board of trustees if I could get arrested, and they said no. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't get arrested. But um, I would have if they had permitted it. Yeah. But uh, I watched it happen, and uh, it was uh, – it was a watershed experience. After I started, left the presidency, and a year later I was at the National Science Foundation, I went to the science march uh, on the mall, and there was Unity College. That's amazing. Uh, I was so proud of those kids. I was just so proud of them. Uh, and they recognized me instantly, which was kind of amazed me because <laughs> I expect to be forgotten. But yeah. uh, I was so proud of them. Uh, but anyway, you you leave a legacy. The one thing I would say about my long career is you leave a legacy through every student, every faculty member, uh, every person you educate. Um, and it's important that you be the best example of ecology and environmental education that you can possibly be. And that means that you respect them wherever they're coming from. And often, um, Academics are not particularly respectful of the lay public. And, you know, I, I'll never forget when I was giving a public talk up in Maine, a guy in overalls rose from his seat and he shouted at me and he said, you're wrong. And I said, really? Why would you say so? And he said, because I read a book and the book says you're wrong. <laughs> I said, well, you know, thank you for sharing. That's great. Uh, so I, I went up to him afterwards and I talked about, you know, with him about the book. I'd actually read it. It was 
garbage. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we talked talked a little bit. I think he left the event with a good taste in his mouth, and that's the most important thing. And students, the secret to great teaching, and I've finally become a good teacher. After all these years, I've learned how to teach. And uh, the secret to it is affective connection. You can't teach unless you're emotionally connecting with the students in some form. You can do so negatively, and (laughs) that doesn't work. But you can do so positively, and it's very, very powerful. And the students will immediately engage with you if they see you as a person who understands that they're afraid. Undergraduates today are are really, really afraid. They're terrified. You know, many of the students in my introductory uh, ecology and sustainability course at UF have never been out of Florida. Wow. Which blows my mind. I had been many, many places by the time I was, you know, my second year in college. And uh, any any advice for teachers out there on, on creating those connections, those emotional connections? Yeah, uh, find affective content in your material. Uh, you can say, well, that's easy for you because you're talking about climate change. Well, no, it's actually not that easy when you talk about biogeochemical cycles. Uh, the carbon cycle can be a total snooze. <laughs> so what you do is you look at aspects of the cycle and you ask the question, what part of this part of the cycle would have an impact on a person where they actually live and you make that connection for them and you bring it home and that's a step toward having an affective connection Um, the other the other way to do it is storytelling we we are obligately social primates and storytelling is how we transfer information so one of the advantages of having had a long career and not being dead yet is I have a lot of stories to tell. So, Be- Before we move on, you mentioned divestment 2.0. Uh, do you have any uh, idea as to how that might look or what, what direction that would go? just about wraps up part one of this conversation with Mulkey. I hope you enjoyed this first part. Um, be sure to check out our works and Mulkey's works on Medium and his other sites and tune in to part two. And thanks for checking out these coffee chats because y'all asked for it and we're hoping you enjoy them. So here's to shorter conversations for y'all. <laughs>